Um, we, we've looked at the, the parable of the treasure and the pearl, the unforgiving servant, the, the workers in the vineyard, the talents. Last Sunday, Pastor Ronnie walked us through the parable of the Good Samaritan. We saw how being a good neighbor to those around us is literally the outworking of the gospel that we claim to believe. And, and maybe you've noticed this if you've been with us throughout our time in the parables, that these parables can really be sobering. Uh, very sobering because they reveal the separation between how we ought to be living as Christians and and then of course how we are actually living and often I don't know about you but in my life there's sometimes a great separation and it's very convicting it's very sobering and and this morning the parable of the rich fool in in my opinion just might be the most sobering of them all Today, Jesus is warning us in our passage against looking to possessions to give us what only he can. Now, this is a huge word for us 21st century American Christians, is it not? Who gather week in and week out and we sing things like, God, you're all I want, you're all I need, or like we sang this morning, I shall not want When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. And if you're like me, so often I intend those words. I I do mean those words. And yet, if I were to put my words on mute, and if you were to examine my life, you know, if there was a video recorder of of, of my life, and you pause the, you know, mute the volume and watch the tape, I wonder if my actions would prove the sincerity when I say, Jesus, it's you. You're all that I want. You're all that I need. And so this morning, we're going to be looking a bit at materialism and consumerism. And and here's some definitions for you. If materialism is the love of stuff, If it's the love of possessions and things, then consumerism is the belief that accumulating more stuff will actually make us happier and more fulfilled. So materialism is the love of stuff. Consumerism is literally a belief or a mindset that accumulating more stuff leads to more fulfillment. And this consumerism, this this materialistic consumerism is so rampant, I don't know if you noticed, in today's culture that psychologists have actually begun to refer to it as the modern religion in America, consumerism. We Americans buy more stuff than any other people group on the planet. That was a Morgan Stanley research Work. We are buying even stuff to hold our stuff. I mean, the container store is like everywhere now, right? Stuff to hold our stuff. If that weren't enough, America, listen to this, now possesses 2.3 billion square feet of self-storage. According to Sparefoot Storage Statistics, and these guys know what they're talking about in this area, The self-storage, the mini-storage industry now rivals Hollywood, earning $38 billion per year. According to the National Association of Home Builders, 
from the 1970s to present day, the average American house has almost doubled, adding over 1,000 square feet per house. So houses have gotten bigger. Studies show that families have gotten smaller. And yet somewhere in the mix, we still need 2.3 billion more square footage of storage space. It is no wonder why Jesus so often warns against the insatiable desire of stuff in the scriptures. 16 of his 38 parables have to do with money and possessions. One out of every 10 verses in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are about money and possessions. The Bible offers about 500 verses on prayer, about 500 verses about faith, and money and possessions, over 2,000 verses. I, I, I kind of took this in my study this week to, 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 to mean this. Consumeristic materialism just might be the most deadly sin on the planet. And especially in America, where abundance and excess and needlessness is all considered as a virtue. We've made it. We've succeeded when we have more than we can handle and we need nothing. And we cannot underplay how much this American dream has colored our churches. Look at some of the castles we erect in the name of Jesus. And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm simply suggesting that we do some introspection. One of the biggest reasons why the gay community struggles with Christians isn't necessarily because we believe and do what the Bible says in relation to homosexuality. It's because we don't believe and do what the Bible says in relation to our own sin. We're hypocrites. How many of us have held and thrown stones at the gay community while clutching the latest iPhone and TV and clothes and cars in the other hand? And so, brothers and sisters, this is a sobering word this morning, if you can't tell. It's been sobering for me. And Jesus is going to address us in great love today in the parable of the rich fool. And so would you turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 13, but I actually would like to pray first today. So would you pray with me before I read? Father, by your most holy spirit, give us ears to hear what you are saying to us let us know that it is for our joy. Remind us of your words in Luke 11, Jesus. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We're blessed. We are actually happy when we follow your decrees and we take your words seriously. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So in today's passage, Jesus and his disciples um, have been traveling around the region of Judea. 
throughout various towns and villages. We know the story. We've been in the parables for a while. Jesus is healing everyone. He's a wonderful teacher. People are drawn to him in droves. Luke records in chapter 12, verse 1, that many thousands of people have gathered around Jesus. So many, in fact, that they are trampling over one another. And so we come to verse 13 in Luke chapter 12, and Jesus is in the middle of teaching his disciples and the crowds. And this is what we read in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to the man, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, the crowd... Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, right off the bat, brothers and sisters, I want to make something absolutely crystal clear. This parable is not anti-rich people, and Jesus is not anti-rich people. And thank God, because every single one of us in this room, compared to someone else in the world, is filthy rich. In fact, this very book, this very New Testament book, the, the, the gospel according to Luke, was made possible by a rich man named Theophilus. He had a lot of money, and he paid for this physician named Luke to go and write a biography to find out all of the information about Jesus he could to interview the eyewitnesses. We have this book of the Bible today because of a rich man named Theophilus. Think about Joseph of Arimathea, the man who took Jesus' body off the cross and buried him in a rich man's tomb. It belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. He was a dear friend of Jesus. So this parable, and Jesus is not, excuse me, is not condemning wealth in and of itself, but it is solemnly warning us about the love of what wealth can afford us. Stuff at work here in this passage is greed and covetousness and consumerism and materialism, and these sins are no respecters of social class. What I mean by that is even the poorest of poor can be greedy and consumeristic. So teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This man interrupts Jesus in front of thousands of people. 
must have been pretty pressing. Now, it's likely that this man, who had clearly been born without manners, uh, also lost his parents recently, or he had lost his manners, we should say, and also lost his parents because the family inheritance seems to have gone to his older brother, which, which was customary for Jews. In fact, the eldest brother was to receive a double portion of the family inheritance. This man who's interrupting Jesus as a Jew, he would have known that, but he's not cool with it. He's not down. And so he brings his case to a rabbi. And because the rabbis were the experts of the law and Jesus was a rabbi, he's bringing his case. Let's work out this inheritance, Jesus. Help me out. Well, Jesus isn't like other rabbis. And so he says to the man, who made me arbitrator, a mediator over your earthly financial battle with your brother? If, if, if this man had any clue, if he had followed Jesus for one second, he would know that Jesus isn't so concerned with the kingdom of earth. He's here to press another issue entirely. And then it's almost as if Jesus knew not only this man's heart, but all of the hearts in this crowd. He had a pulse of what was going on because he turns to the crowd, not just to the man. Don't you love that in school? Like when you ask a question and the teacher then turns to the rest of the class to use you as the example. Like don't ask this question for this reason, class. Don't you love that? Jesus kind of does that. He turns and with his his voice in verse 15, he says to everybody, Take care. In light of this man's question, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness like this. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he tells the story uh, of this rich man whose land produced a bunch of crops. And then rather than dispersing them, he hoards them. He tears down small barns. You know, the container store came to Israel and he he buys stuff to hold his stuff and to organize his stuff. He builds bigger barns in place of the smaller ones. He stands back. He he looks at everything he's accrued and he decides that today is the day for early retirement. To spend the rest of his days eating and drinking and being merry. Now, just be sobering with me here for a moment or be sobered. Does this not sound part and parcel of the American dream? I have enough, finally, and I can go into retirement to eat and drink and be merry. And yet, this is how God responds to the rich man. Fool. Little did you know that this, today was your last appointed day on earth. And all of these precious things that you have spent hours upon hours scrolling through on your phone, sifting through in the aisleways of stores, planning and plotting, marking out in your catalogs, all of these things, whose will they be? And then Jesus ends his parable by saying to the crowd, just like this man, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself on this earth and is not rich toward God 
And we're going to look at what that means. In this passage, Jesus is offering us two things. If you're a note taker, these are my two points. Jesus is offering us a warning. And he's offering us a weapon. He's warning us about consumeristic materialism, that it is deadly and that it already lives in our hearts. And then he's giving us a weapon because consumeristic materialism has an Achilles heel. There's a weak spot in its armor. And he's going to give that to us and we're going to look at those two things. Let's look at number one. That verse 15 has been so sobering to me this week. I, I, I'm sorry to keep using that word sobering. I just, take care. Church, be on your guard. That means to expect it, to anticipate it. It's not if materialism penetrates your heart, brother or sister, it's that it already has. And it is going to trick you just like it tricked Adam and Eve in the garden who thought to themselves, you know, the serpent is right. If we just had this one piece of fruit that we don't have, we need this one more thing, then everything else will be made right. We'll experience fullness of life. Never mind that they already possessed and had dominion over all the rest of creation. It was the desire for what they didn't have that drove them literally to sin and death. Do we see these parallels? And so Jesus, I believe his warning stretches over to those of us in this room who look to possessions for three things. Satisfaction, meaning pleasure and fulfillment. Security, looking to possessions to stabilize us and comfort us and secure us and looking to possessions to, for, for status, for identity and self-worth. He's warning us against seeking satisfaction. That's the first S, if you will. Warning us against seeking pleasure and fulfillment in possessions. The rich man in the parable already had storage barns full of stuff, but it wasn't enough. Just look at how many of our favorite movie stars, our favorite athletes who have everything, everything that money can buy, look at how they are needless, and yet look at how they are so impoverished in and out of relationships, in and out of bankruptcy, in and out of rehab. They have everything and yet they have nothing. Even Hollywood is beginning to realize and recognize that possessions cannot give satisfaction, the satisfaction we crave. I don't know if you've seen recently the movie The Greatest Showman, but there is a song. It has literally become like one of my favorite songs. It's called Never Enough. Listen to the truth that it tells. All the shine of a thousand spotlights. All the stars we could steal from the night sky will never be enough. Never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. It will never be enough for me. 
don't we know this to be true? What material possession has ever given us the lasting satisfaction we crave? In regards to this phenomena of never being able to quench our thirst and our desire, C.S. Lewis once commented, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Like the rich man in the parable, like the man in the crowd who interrupted Jesus in order to acquire more earthly treasures, he was thinking he could find fulfillment, but by design, and this is a mercy, by design, church, we can only ever find satisfaction in Christ. Psalm 1611, the psalmist writes, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, O Lord, are pleasures forevermore. See, looking to created things for satisfaction instead of the creator is like Googling pictures of the ocean while we're sitting on the beach. And yet, that's what so many of us are prone to do. We simply haven't come to believe the first parable that we looked at, that Jesus is the treasure. He is the pearl of great worth. Many of us can't relate with the psalmist that in your presence there is fullness of joy because we've simply not experienced that all-satisfying power of Christ because we're too busy filling up on placebos. Secondly, I believe Jesus is warning us against seeking security. This is a big one in possessions. I'd say the rich man probably felt pretty secure, right? He had lots of stuff. He had, he had big barns to protect his stuff. He probably had big insurance policies protecting the big barns that were protecting his stuff. Does this not sound familiar? I mean, from, 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 from first glance, this sounds appealing. The security. And this is partially what the man in the crowd was after. But here's, this, here, here's the thing. There is nothing in all the world that will keep us from Christ quite like needlessness. And complete man-made security in what we have. There is nothing in the world that will keep us from Christ like self-sufficiency, self-stability, self-security. After all, when we get to these places, what on earth do we need Christ for? If the first thing that we think of when we think of security is the amount of money that we make, or the first thing we think of is our 401k or our home alarm system, if those are the first things we think of when we think of security and we don't think of the blood-bought promises of Jesus who says, I will never leave you under any circumstances ever, ever. I will never forsake you, Deuteronomy 31.6. I will never, or I will make everything 
that happens in your life, even the bad stuff, I will make it work for your good and for your joy. There is nothing in all the world that can separate you from my love. Even when you're faithless, I remain faithful to you and what I've started in you, I will finish. I will bring you home. If we find more security in ADT than those words from Christ... We may not actually be believers. We cannot be so easily fooled by the false security of earthly excess because paychecks will bounce, businesses will go bankrupt, stock markets will crash, and last of all, which one of us with all of our barns in the forefront of our minds can add a single moment to our lives. By design, only Christ can give us the security that we seek in our souls. It's been intrinsically written into our DNA. We were made to be secure. And when we're looking for it outside of our creator, we will never find it. But when we return to him who wired us for security in him, we will taste it. Further, we need to rest assured that we will not be Christians on mission if our biggest concern is earthly security. Those who find their stability inside the boat never step out onto the water where Jesus is. And yet this is where he calls all of his people out on the water where we have to trust him as our only source of security. Kingdom missions, kingdom adventures for the advancement of the gospel, they all take place in realms of insecurity, earthly insecurity. And to be a kingdom, to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to be a person who takes risks And I heard one pastor say this once, that you want to know how to spell faith, it's R-I-S-K. A.W. Tozer once wrote that God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only things that we can do in our own strength. We've gotten so smart to set up our safety nets of ministry that where is the boldness, where is the zeal, where is the abandon of the church in North America where we just jettison the 501K in order to go and to preach and proclaim the news of salvation to the lost? Do we not think he's going to take care of us? Lastly, be warned against seeking status, identity and self-worth and possessions. For the rich fool, his identity had become wrapped up in the the number and the capacity of his barns. And for us, our identity gets wrapped up in the size or location of our homes or the make or model of our cars or the name brand on our clothing or the the phone. Do you have the 6 or do you have the 6S or do you you have the 7 or the 7S? Do we hear a trend? I mean, we're a bunch of fools for Apple, right? It's the same phone, Interestingly, 
psychology and marketing studies right now are aimed at, and they are finding major links between materialistic consumerism and issues of self-worth and insecurity. So we simply have to ask, okay, why all of this rampant consumerism in America? You guys, it's because we don't know who we are. The rich man in the parable was blinded by identity crisis and he, he had settled for temporal identity, temporary identity found in his possessions. Now look, we were all made for status, for identity. We all want to matter. We are all looking for significance and value and worth. We were made for these things to come from God as image bearers. Christ alone can give us and restore this status that we seek. Listen, if you want to sleep at night and you're prone to scanning through whatever's online and you know, filling up your, your wish list on Amazon for the things that will make you into the person you really want to be, if you're ever sleepless, meditate not on your position at work or, or the number of vacation homes you own, but meditate on this. You are a blood-bought child of the king of all kings. For Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, you are chosen by God that we collectively are a royal priesthood, a holy people that is his own possession. We've been called out of darkness into marvelous light. Once, he says, he writes, we were not a people, but now we are God's people. And so as your pastor who happens to be materialistic to the bone, the next time I want to make a quick purchase on Amazon, will you join me in collectively asking ourselves before we do, am I purchasing this out of need or am I purchasing this because I have forgotten who I am? And what a beautiful way that we can serve each other in our community groups to remind each other of the identity we've been given in the gospel. Our status in Christ is secured. Jesus, I believe, the man that interrupted him, I believe he is lovingly imploring this man Brother, don't settle for counterfeit satisfaction, security, or status in possessions. I've come to rescue you from their grip. I've come to give you life and life to the full. And at the end of the parable, Jesus subtly gives this weapon with which we can fight the attack of consumerism when it rises in our hearts. How do we fight the urge to lay up treasure for ourselves, which we will likely be uh, tempted with the very moment we let out from here, if you're not already being tempted? Just a note of humor, I can't even tell you how badly this week I wanted to buy another pair of shoes that sounds so vain, and it is, but like there's something about this passage that just illuminated, and I had to buy it. By God's grace, I didn't. I washed my old ones, so they, yay, because I'm a child of the king, hallelujah. 
The answer, the weapon that Jesus gives is subtle, but it's in verse 21. Not by storing up treasure for ourselves, but by being rich toward God. Now, I want to tell you what that doesn't mean in these closing moments. Because if Oprah Winfrey is in here right now, she's going to misconstrue that verse and leave Christ even further, if, if that's even possible. I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God needs anything of yours. In fact, Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, through him, by him, for him, were all things made. Did you hear that? Everything was made through him, by him, and for him. He owns it all already. So Jesus could not possibly mean that Jesus needs our stuff to be rich toward God. He owns everything. So to be rich toward God, as Jesus is urging us, is to live in the very posture that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in the parable of the talents. It is to use everything that God has given us and entrusted us with for the expansion of his glorious kingdom. It is to take every dime that he has entrusted us with, every square inch of acreage or property, every vehicle, every item of clothing, and to steward them in such a way where we bless those around us and we make disciples with these resources until Jesus returns. Jesus says in verse 33, which isn't our passage, but he says this, this sounds extreme and the American pastors today want to tell you that we are not bound to this, but I'm not so sure. So sure. Sell your possessions and give them to the needy, Jesus says. It's not just give out of the abundance of our paycheck, it's what's the crap that's in my garage that I can get rid of and bless someone else with. I've never seen anyone go that extreme and radical in generosity. Jesus continues, provide yourselves then with money bags that don't grow old. In fact, when we give away our earthly treasure, we are accumulating a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, he says. Our weapon is to go to war against the false satisfaction and security and status of material excess by being radically generous toward others. Where are our modern day Theophiluses? Where are our modern day Joseph of Arimathea's? And we wouldn't do this in order to be accepted by God. Hear this. Because if you go and you sell everything and you give it all up so that God will accept you, that is called legalism. It is the anti-gospel. Here's the good news. In Christ, you are already in. You are already in. If you by faith believe that Christ the perfect one came and lived the perfect life in your place and then he took your sin and he died on a cross that you deserve in your place, was buried in a tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea but it had your name on it and mine, and then when he raised to life and he says, come to me by faith, that means believe that I have done everything needed to secure your salvation. All you have to do is trust in my offering that it was complete. That is all we have to do. And then we get to go and sell our crap that is rusting anyway and advance his kingdom with great joy. 
we get to participate. I think that the church ought to treat materialistic consumerism like it's pornography. I think it's even deadlier than pornography, if I'm blatantly honest. I think it would even mean for in us, for in our, in our community groups, what if we were to get our, P, our, our Paul or our Timothy and we were to call them regularly when we were feeling the urge to buy something we didn't need? What if we attacked it that hard? That's the weapon that Christ is giving us. What if our Paul or our Timothy regularly challenged us to reorient our needs and our wants because we get them so confused? I need those shoes. I really do. Brother, you do not. Someone else does. Buy the brand new pair of shoes and send them to this address. Hallelujah. Call someone the next time you're strolling through Walmart. My weakness is Target. I have to drive a long way to go there. But to have somebody on speed dial, I am about to reach for something that I didn't come for, talk me off of the ledge because I am filling up on, on lesser satisfaction. Don't let me believe the lie. Ultimately, being rich toward God means holding him tightly and our possessions very loosely. And what dearer possession to Abraham was, was out there than, than his son Isaac? God had finally given Abraham and Sarah a son. And then he says, Abraham, I'm going to test your loyalty. Offer your son as a sacrifice. And Abraham, in faith, was willing to do it. It was never God's intention to have him do it because you want to know why? It was God's own intention to send his own only begotten son to do that very thing. To save his people. I'll end with this. And I'm sorry if this has been frazzled. I have felt just destroyed by this parable this week. Romans 8.32 this same God that I just talked about giving his only begotten son for the atonement of sins, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you know what that means? That today you and I can believe that if we use this weapon, if we go to war against false satisfaction of possessions, false security of possessions, false status of possessions, if we war against this and we actually do what God is prescribing that we do, he will bless us beyond what any of those material things were blessing us in the first place. Jesus is screaming to us today, possessions cannot give us the life we seek. Take care, church, and let's be together on our guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Father, forgive me. Forgive me, forgive me. For too long... I have lifted my hands with great 
what seems like outward abandon, singing in church service after church service, you are all that I want, you are all that I need, and in you I am satisfied, and I am lying through my teeth when I do that. So forgive me. And what I pray is, is if any of my brothers and sisters can relate, oh God, I pray that you would grant our hearts to delight in you. That we would salivate for your word and for nearness to you in prayer. That we would hunger for it more than we hunger for food. Would you do this work in us, Lord, in Worcester, Ohio? Would you make us ravenous for you and transform us Make us radically generous that we would transform by your grace, Lord, Wayne County. I thank you for the gospel that declares that any one of us who simply repents and asks for your forgiveness in this area, Lord, you forgive, you forgive over and over and over and you restore us and that's what we're going to do here in just a moment as we celebrate the body and the blood that was poured out for us. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.